Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to improve themselves, overcome obstacles, and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hello and welcome to the podcast. So many of you wrote in to tell me that you loved last week's episodes. There were two. Debbie Mays of the Mays team was on, as well as Corey Connors, a writer and musician. I have loved getting your feedback. Thank you so much for taking the time to write me. And as always, please share the episodes you love with someone who you think will like them. Tag me at About Progress or on Instagram and Facebook when you do so, so I can interact with you there. You can always find the show notes on my website, aboutprogress.com. I am thrilled with today's guest, Meg Fee, and the lovely interview that we had together. Let me give her more of a formal introduction in a moment, but first I have one big announcement for you. This podcast is about to be taken to the next level. I have a lot in store for you. The first being an in-person workshop in Utah on Thursday, June 21st from 7 to 9 p.m. The topic is get over yourself, how to push away perfectionism and move towards a better you. This is for women, sorry men, who are in one way or another enslaved by perfectionist demands they put on themselves. It is inspired by the podcast episode I did with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, where she said that phrase nonchalantly, get over yourself, but it stuck with me and I have so many things to teach you and resources to give you. It's going to be a great night and I know you can apply it to many situations. You might be a stereotypical perfectionist who is an overachiever. Um, or you might be what I think is a more common perfectionist, which is an underachiever. Either way, let me help you work through how perfectionism is getting in the way of you better embracing your gifts and moving towards a real fulfilling, but messy still life. I'm limiting this first workshop to 20 people at $30 a pop. It'll take place at a home in Farmington, again in Utah, and it will include some light refreshments too. I am announcing this only on my podcast for this week to reward you listeners for for being here week after week. So to reserve your spot, email me at packerprogress at gmail.com and I'll give you further instructions. I have two free spots that I'm opening for people who are not in a place financially to pay for themselves. So if you think your situation qualifies for that spot, don't hesitate. Email me about it, packerprogress at gmail.com. And if I can't get you in this time, I'll put you on my list for the next one that I'll be doing. So that is so exciting, friends, and I hope I get to see you and meet you in person and that we can learn together. Let's talk about Meg Fee. Back in the early days of blogging, long ago it seems like now, I found Meg, who was a friend of a friend of a friend, and back in that time people were generally just writing about their lives without any prerogatives, and so you go blog hopping. When I discovered Meg, I resounded deeply with her writing. Not only did she talk about her struggles to overcoming Ned, her nickname for her nasty eating disorder, but she talked so freely about the triumphs and failings of what it means to have your adult life unfold in your 20s, especially with the backdrop of New York City. I reached out to her that long time ago, and she was so kind, and she gave me support that I needed to work through my own recovery. So it had been a while since we connected, but I was 
very honored and surprised when Meg agreed to be on the show to discuss what she learned in her 20s and how this is translated to her writing a beautiful memoir that I want to share with you. It is called The Places I Stopped on My Way Home, and it is getting big buzz everywhere, and I'm telling you that Meg deserves it. This book shares the deep sadness Meg experienced as a companion to her recovery with an eating disorder. It talks about the star-crust loves she almost had and her pursuit of meaning through the mess of her life taking so many different turns than she had wanted. This book is heartbreaking, real, sigh-worthy, relatable, and triumphant. It will keep you up all night like it did to me multiple times because you won't be able to put it down. Listen in to hear how Meg's 20s transformed her into something so much more and how we too can find our own meaning through the sadness that we experience because of life. A quick note before we begin, Meg was a little under the weather and God bless her. She still got on the show and interviewed with me so her voice is a little scratchier. Also, the first few minutes are a little glitchy, but bear with us. That'll be over quickly, and then you'll be well rewarded with Meg's incredible story and wisdom. On to our interview. I want to welcome Meg V to the show. Hi, Meg. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great and totally trying to not freak out as a fangirl over here. (laughs) And I'd love to have you start by introducing yourself to our listeners. Sure. Um, My name is Meg Fee, and I am a woman in her early 30s. I currently live in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I'm getting my master's of public policy from Duke University. And I just wrote a book. I just published a book about um, my 20s. It's a memoir and a collection of essays about sort of navigating the highs and lows of that very particular decade. Um, And it's set against the backdrop of New York City. So I discovered you early on in this. I think I think we've technically yeah. been, you know, we were internet friends since mm-hmm. you started this 10 plus years ago. And yeah. my goodness, there's so much to say about your book alone, and we will be going into that. But I'd like to talk a little bit more generally about your story first. Um, sure. Because you did, you did start sharing... Um, your story and who you are and the things you were struggling with uh, on your on your website and your blog, makefee.com. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were sharing in a way that was very unique at the time. And it was mm-hmm. authentic and it was real. It was vulnerable well before it was popular to be any of those things. Mm-hmm. And that's what I connected with you about so quickly also because we had a similar struggles with eating disorders. So mm-hmm. let's get into this a little bit because your book does it sure. as well. But tell me a little bit about your, your early adult years. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I moved to New York when I was 18 for college. Um, I got into Juilliard and felt sort of, I was like, well, you don't say no to Juilliard. Like, mm. you have, I have to go. And I was so excited. Um, but I was also aware pretty early into my first year that, um, you know, you're, you're, I think like those first years in college are incredibly formative and they're for making mistakes and, and messing up. And I felt like 
I didn't have that opportunity. Like things had gone so well and I'd gotten into the school and I needed to continue doing things exactly right and continue along this very specific path. Um, and what ended up happening is I did have the very typical college experience in that I gained the freshman 15. Um, and I also fell in love with a guy for the first time. Mm-hmm. And those two things, though they really didn't have anything to do with one another, sort of became, I don't know if it was by virtue of time or chance, but they, they became really inextricably bound. Um, and the man did not fall in love with me, mm-hmm. um, or at least not in a capacity that he could um, be with me. And what what happened was the feeling of heartbreak um, was so overwhelming to me and so um, sort of beyond language, beyond, like it was just bigger than anything I'd experienced before. And at that time, because I had gained this weight, I somehow just conflated these two things. And I thought, well, okay, uh, you know, it was, it was far more difficult to grapple with I don't know why this man doesn't love me. Maybe it's, you know, reasons sort of beyond sense and and meaning. And so I tried to like distill it down to this very particular thing. Mm. And I said, well, he doesn't love me because, you know, he doesn't love me because I'm, I'm bigger than I was, or he doesn't love me because I'm not the thinnest person in the room. Mm. Um, And I thought, well, if I, but, but what was crazy about it is that as it was happening, I was aware that, even if I lost those 15 pounds that I gained, he wasn't going to love me. <laughs> like I knew that on an intellectual level, but on this very um, sort of emotional level, it it allowed me to like create a distance between myself and the heartache, yeah. um, <clears throat> which was very clever of <laughs> my brain yeah. to do. <laughs> but um, really unhealthy, uh, and I paid for it in the long run. So I, I for the first time in my life, I, you know, I didn't know what a calorie was until I got to college. I'd never had eating issues. I didn't grow up in a family where that was any sort of part of any conversation. Um, but I, I gained these 15 pounds, and I was like, well, I need to lose this in part because I am in an industry where so much of a woman's success is tied to what she looks like, specifically how thin she is. Um, And so I, over the summer between my first and second year of college, uh, second years of college, um, I went to, uh, I I was like, well, I want to do this the right way. Um, And both my OBGYN and my pediatrician suggested Weight Watchers. Um, And so I, I signed up. I did exactly what they told me to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say if anyone ever brings a class action lawsuit against the company, I will absolutely sign my name on the dotted line. Yeah. Um, because I did it for 10 weeks and I ate 20 points, which is the equivalent of uh, about a thousand calories, which oh. is not enough for the body. Oh, uh, wow. Turns out it that is considered starvation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, 10 weeks essentially starved myself without knowing I was doing that. And I then started binging and I Mm -hmm. binged for about the next six years. So I always like those two numbers are so stark 
and startling to me, this idea of like 10 weeks turned into six years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that was really, that was the sort of my, the origin story of my eating disorder. And you've, you said it in uh, both your blog and in your book that it took you two years to get diagnosed with a formal eating yeah. disorder. And the frustration yeah. that you you dealt with in going to several therapists who didn't mm-hmm. uh, call this the right thing is just awful. Mm-hmm. So what was it about yeah. getting a name to this that propelled you to move forward in the right direction towards your recovery? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think, you know, if I was going through this today, I wonder if I would have a very different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, there, the, the conversation is changing, and I think people are being more um, candid about their experiences with eating disorders. But mm-hmm. because there was so much and still is so much shame surrounding them and people were so quiet for so long that the medical community outside of like, you know, experts in this very particular thing is not actually well-trained at identifying and then treating eating disorders. Um, And so, (sighs) yeah, yeah. it's it's gotten better, but as you know, we we had a similar, I mean, we have like the same story in that way too. Mm -hmm. But I think the word binging just carries Mm -hmm. such a deeper level of shame than say anorexia Mm -hmm. that it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's harder for, you know, it's been harder for professionals to identify that as a formal Mm -hmm. eating disorder, but it's also harder to accept it within yourself that that's what this is, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I lucked out because while it did take me two years to find for for someone to identify this, and I feel like it's important to say that I'm not exactly sure of these numbers, but but of all eating disorders, which is you know different than just this, I shouldn't say just disordered eating. Disordered eating is terrible, but disordered eating is separate from from illnesses. Yeah. Um, that are eating disorders mm-hmm. and of, of things that are diagnosed or diagnosable as eating disorders. It's only like, it's either 18% or 12%. And this is like 10 years old for all I know. Um, but, but that anorexia and bulimia falls into that percentage. Wow. So the other, it's like in the 80 percentile range, like the 80% are non-specified eating disorders. So, mm what I was struggling with is I went to these doctors and they were like, well, you're not, you're not purging and you're not starving yourself. So this isn't an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily when I finally was diagnosed with this non-specific eating disorder, um, that's when my parents really sort of understood what I was grappling with. Yeah. And my mom did some research and she found this, this um, doctor, Tom Hildebrand, mm-hmm. who's, was and still is the head of the eating and weight disorders program at Mount Sinai. Mm. So I went to see him at the end of my fourth year, just before graduating Juilliard. Yeah. And what's really lucky for me is he just broke it down in terms of science. And he, he basically said, you know, the body is incredibly adaptive. Um, It's primed over many thousands of years for feast and famine. And when we experience famine, the body knows what 
knows what to do because evolution has trained it. So when our brain does not get enough food, um, it begins to seek it out. It begins to seek out calorie-dense food. It begins, like the food tastes different. It craves different things. Um, but he explained to me that binging is really like the body's override system. So in the same way that the body faints when it's, you know, when oxygen or blood is struggling to get to the heart, like the body goes down, it levels itself flat to the floor because then blood can rush that much faster to the heart. It's like efficient. Wow. It's easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's essentially what the binge is. It's yeah. like, hey, you're not doing what we need you to do and we're starving here. So we're just going to take care of it. Um, mm-hmm. So there was so much shame with binging itself like with the feeling that I couldn't control the binge Mm -hmm. that intellectually I knew I didn't want to do it but then I'd carry through on this impulse that I had like that carried so much shame for me but labeling the eating disorder as binge eating that didn't carry the shame that was like oh okay like now I can breathe I know what this is and really once I got that label and once I knew it was happening that was the beginning. That was like the first time I grabbed sort of rope and was like, okay, I'm going to pull myself out of this. And I asked that because that was my story as well. Once I was told like, this is Mm. no, I, I, to hear, yes, you have an eating disorder. was like a relief. Mm -hmm. And Mm. so sometimes, you know, naming our problem is the best way to propel us forward into finding tools and, and taking our recovery seriously. And, seeking help from family and friends you in your book you um you talk about recovering from your eating disorder near the end and I was wondering if you could read um part of what you wrote there I sat across from a guy on a second date one time who asked me but don't you miss it don't you miss those moments when you totally overindulge I looked at him and smiled I thought of grocery stores and long aisles and foods wrapped in plastic and the overwhelming terror and insatiable hunger that drove me there again and again. No, I said to him, returning to the fried chicken in front of me. No, I really don't. People tell you that it will last forever, that there is no such thing as recovery, that there is only a daily maneuvering, a reasoned management. But even in my worst moments, I knew that if such a thing were true, that if it were the only truth that had ever before existed, then I would go in search of a new truth. Because to accept such a thing would be to settle for a life that was simply too small. There is a life after an eating disorder that has nothing to do with the eating disorder. But you have to reach in that direction. You have to be unrelenting in your pursuit of better and richer and fuller experiences in which pizza and white wine and Brussels sprouts play a part, a really good part but still just a part. Okay. So there was so much that I loved about how you worded this. I think it explains what it's like to be experiencing this sort of eating disorder, Mm -hmm. but also how recovery, the movement that you, that you gain and the insight that you have Mm -hmm. about what it really is about. So for you, Mm -hmm. that was a big part in what you share in this book too about, and you said this too, what the eating disorder was really about for you. What can you name that as now, now that you're past What it was so really about? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Um. 
serendipitously makes call dropped right at that point. So let's do a little break now before we pick it back up. I have been a cardio queen forever. Who else relates? Starting with me dancing throughout my childhood until I was 18, followed by a deep love of running until I was 31. But under doctor's orders, I was told to basically never run again. So about a year and a half ago, I was forced to stare at some dumbbells and take strength training seriously for the first time in my life. But I was shocked by how little cardio I needed to get really strong with some proper strength training. However, although I started with some helpful classes at the gym that taught me a lot, I am now at a point where I have to primarily work out from home for a number of reasons. And as a result, I have been at a loss with strength training, especially because I hate having to scroll through the internet to find a quick but solid workout. So I want to tell you about a fitness coaching program that has helped the strength newbie out tremendously. It's called Vibrant Bite, a fitness and nutrition coaching program at a bite-sized price. For $20 a month, each Thursday, you get a meal plan, which I like for dinners, and three strength training workouts to do that week with very little to no equipment. And you can do it anywhere you need to, from your little creepy garage like I have, or your master bedroom, or even at the gym. I've taken these workouts everywhere. It takes the guesswork out of what I need to do and the how. If you don't know what a move is, you just click on the word, and it'll take you to a written and photographed explanation that is so helpful for someone like me. So again, for $20 a month, you get 12 plus workouts and a weekly meal plan that includes family friendly recipes. I have a link for you to sign up in my show notes on my website aboutprogress.com, and make sure you use the code progress. So they know who sent you for my listeners. You can get your first week free through a separate link that is also in my show notes. And I hope you love it as much as I do. So remember to use the code progress and let me know what you think. Let's get back to my interview with Meg, who was just about to answer my questions about what really drove her eating disorder. You just said, oh, man, and then (laughs) it cut out. So I pressed record again. Um, Okay. What was the eating disorder really about? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a hard question to answer even now. Yeah. I think what it was really about was an unwillingness to sit with discomfort. Oh, yes. An unwillingness to sit with the unknown or to sit in between. Um, it was like, you know, it's funny because I, there was a friend that as I was going through it, um, we are no longer friends, mm-hmm. um, but she made a comment at one point um, about someone else who was going through a similar situation. And she basically, the way she talked about it was like, well, they've made the choice. They've, it's their, you know, I don't even, she just. Didn't she say something like, I don't have an addictive personality? Oh, no, that was someone else. else? People respond to eating disorders terribly often. Well, and do you like that I can recall that because I read every post on your website that you ever wrote? (laughs) Um, Yes. Oh, my God. That was when I was, oh, I was working at a restaurant in that She was starting to do Weight Watchers. Yeah. And and I was like, you know, and and part of recovery is that you do sort of begin to like, um, you, 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 you talk about it a lot. I did. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is how I recovered and I need everyone to know. And, and it really, you know, I should have kept my mouth shut in that moment, but I was, 
I basically said, oh, you know, you should be careful. And she just turned so quickly and was like, I don't have an addictive personality like you. Yeah. People can be cruel about it. Yep. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But what I, what I'm constantly struck by is that there, and people, people don't just do this about eating disorder. They do it about everything Mm -hmm. that we try to create imaginary lines or we, we assign, you know, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know how to put words to exactly what I'm trying to say. It's this idea of like, if we can make someone separate from ourselves, if we can put them on another side of our line, Mm -hmm. then we actually protect ourselves from that thing. So by saying like, you've chosen this eating disorder, she was trying to put distance between herself and my experience. Because on some level, she was afraid that she would experience it too. Um, and you know, people do that with, with illnesses of all different kinds all of the time and do it with, you know, it's easy to say with depression, with cancer, with anything. It's like, Oh, but you're over there and I'm protecting myself. But the thing is like, that's just an illusion. Um, because the truth about life is that we don't know when or what's going to come for us at, at any moment and the best that we can do is just be adaptive and Mm -hmm. and sort of ride the wave that is life and respond with as much grace and humility um to any moment as as we're able to and one of the things that i've learned through mine too is to own our humanity and Mm, and by that and this i learned from a woman named dr jennifer finlayson five she's been on the show a few times but she talked mm-hmm. about a lot of people's problems is that they don't want to be human. And so as as mm-hmm. we try to better own our humanity and own our weaknesses, we're able to actually be better, <laughs> a better human and, mm-hmm. and have better gifts mm-hmm. to give ourselves in the world. But that's also yeah. that entails knowing that we're fallible, that things can happen to mm-hmm. us <laughs> and that um, we have work to do often. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And isn't that what is exciting about this life? Yes. <laughs> like it was never going to be perfect. There's no way to do it perfectly. That would have terrified me before. But how much more mm. freeing is it, is it to just own it? Yeah. And I always, it makes me think of um, from my days when I was an actor, you do a show and the show begins and there's always that moment, that first moment that someone makes a mistake and you're waiting for it because you know it's coming. Oh, Whether yeah? it's like <clears throat> someone stumbles over a line or misses a line or someone trips or, and the moment that it happens, it's like uh, a cloud lifts and then you can have fun. But oh, you need yeah? to get that first mistake out of the way. And so I, the more in my own life, I'm like, it's always, you know, like the, the mistake is actually the gift of levity. Oh, yes. Okay, that's brilliant. Um, so let's let's talk about writing in general then, because th- these were really sure. dark years. Why did you turn to mm. writing? I mean, you were an actor. Um, you had many other talents, but what was it about writing that that drew you in and, and helped you? Yeah, well, I started writing um, when the economy plummeted. Um, I graduated in 2008 and sort of the bottom fell out from under us. And in order to sort of exercise my creative muscles, I had to figure out a way to do it on my own. Um, 
And I, blogging had sort of just come into the cultural consciousness. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, this is fun. This will be great. And I, I think what I liked about knowing, I didn't know that people were going to read it, but the possibility that people were going to read it meant that I had to approach it differently than I approached my diary. Mm. So I, in writing online, I wrote with an optimistic bent that mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily have. Mm. Um, and I sort of, you know, wrote my way into optimism. I wrote my way into faith. I wrote my way into belief. Um, but what was so powerful about writing really is that um, it was like a way of figuring out what I actually thought. Like I would sit down, you know, you sit down to write. And actually writing became a template for how to recover from the eating disorder mm -hmm. and how to live my life because you sit down to write, you don't know, at least I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. I'm just on the ride. I'm on the journey. And, you know, it, it could stop after 500 words. It could stop after 1500, but like, I'm going to experience that, that journey and not try to control it. Hmm. Um, and so it, it really sort of revealed me to myself in a way that I could not have prepared for. And in doing that process, you gave the best gift of allowing other people to take part in that journey with you. You know, I mentioned how mm -hmm. you were authentic before it was popular. So what what did you get out of out of sharing such an intimate part of your life and struggle with people? Yeah, I mean, I think what I got was ownership. It was a feeling of like, this is, I am experiencing an illness that the outside world tells me that I should, the, the narrative attached to it is one of shame mm -hmm. and one of hiding away. But if I can actually write my own narrative, then I reclaim that story. Um, mm -hmm. So it was really about taking the experience that I felt like I was being told in subtle ways that I was supposed to have and, and just taking, reclaiming it. Wow. Okay. You know, you you talk about sadness being something like a, a suit you would wear. I'm not sure if I'm using uh, the exact phrase. Do I? Um, well, something about how you wore sadness for so many years. Um, mm, it was such a yeah. part of you. But but mm. you, you've shifted your relationship with sadness. And, yeah. you know, it can still be a part of your life. But how is it different mm. now? Yeah, I think um, it's a smaller piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely still there. And it's something that I deeply honor and deeply respect. And that I think has tremendous value. Um, but it's been contextualized. It's, it's part of a much bigger picture. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew, you know, in in sort of pulling myself out of that sadness and recovering from the eating disorder, I thought if I try to stamp this out, then like I'm, I'm, I'm cutting myself off from happiness in many ways because I, it's part of a spectrum, you know, one is that like the two things are not inseparable. Um, you, you can't, you can't have one without the other. And I truly huh. believe that. So I, I, there's still sadness in my life and there's, 
a great amount of happiness. And I also think that the two things can exist at the same time. Um, But the thing that I really pursue in my life is a feeling of um, meaningfulness. Like what has meaning? What, what satisfies me? What fills me up? What do I believe in? Um, And if I do that and happiness, you know, happens to pass through like a breeze, then excellent. Um, But I don't expect or even want it to, um, you know, I don't, it's not, it's not stasis. It's not a thing that comes and settles and stays forever. Like it's a constantly moving target. And I, I think that's really important. I think a big part of most of our problems is that we think that happiness is something we can achieve or earn, or we just have this Mm -hmm. concept in our mind that like people often say, I I want to be happy as their goal, but I think Mm -hmm. they have Mm -hmm. happiness wrong, what it really is, what it really Mm -hmm. looks like. And I love that you're saying it's, it, it holds hands with sadness and it seems like the connection yeah. with your eating disorders, you said it's, it, it was a way for you to avoid the in-between and to sit with your mm. negative emotions. Like as you're sitting with sadness and honoring it, like you were saying, you're making room for mm. happiness. And that's such a unique yeah. concept. I, I, I really believe that everything good and worthy I learned through the lens of an eating disorder. Um. And so when people say, oh, if you could go back and undo it, would you? Mm-hmm. Like, would I live those six years again? No. Mm-hmm. But am I, like, I, I don't say this to be trite. I'm not trying to diminish anyone's experience by saying this, but, like, I truly am thankful for that experience um, because it did turn me into the person I am. And it distilled, um, it, like, created a value system that's incredibly robust. Um, and so I, I like that idea of happiness and sadness. I mean, it, in some ways it comes from the, you know, when I realized like if I placed any value on weight loss, then what that meant was that weight gain had a similar value, but in the opposite direction. And that was in many ways killing me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I can't value weight loss. Like those mm. two things are, are, are tied together. So I can't, and that's what I mean about happiness and sadness is like, you don't get to only value one and not the other. Um, they, they both, they're both together each other. Well, and I heard a saying lately, um, that really stuck to me and it's that which you resist persists. If you're resisting sadness, mm. <laughs> anxiety, worry, that's what will continue to persist. And you're missing out on yeah. so much more depth. And I love that you say that mm-hmm. having an eating dis- um what was it that you said? Let me, even in, while you were in, okay, this is on page 134. When you say mm-hmm. it was never lost on me. Um, can you read just that part mm-hmm. for me? Sure. It was never lost on me, even when I was most unwell, that the desire to change my body was the least interesting thing about me. So the reason I wanted to you to read that is it ties into what we were just saying, that which you resist persists and just how sad mm. <laughs> that can be of how, how much we're limiting ourselves. And that, mm-hmm. that I love that you discovered that about yourself, that that wasn't what you wanted yeah. to focus on. And that's not what you wanted 
to be the most interesting thing about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I just looked around at all of my girlfriends and we were all to some in some capacity struggling with this this notion that we had to look a certain way in order to feel a certain way. And it was really holding us all back. And I was like, this is not worth it. Mm-hmm. Why are we why are we wasting this time and energy focusing on something that you know, someone else or society has told us that we, that basically has sold us um, Mm -hmm. as a way of, of, you know, selling more shoes yeah, (laughs) Um, or any number of things. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's move into talking a little bit more about your book because your book is about your recovery. Yes, but it's about so much more. Mm -hmm. It's about the, the, the changes that you experienced as a growing woman, I mean, the twenties are the most, I think, yeah. transformative period of our lives, even more than I'd say yeah. teenage years and, and life is speeding up yeah, for you know, sure. from 30 on. So twenties <laughs> seems to be mm-hmm. the, uh, very important year. So can you read the disclaimer at the beginning of your book? Because I think that sure. just encapsulates your book. I mean, I told you I dog eared like your whole book that I would love you to read different quotes <laughs> from, but let's start with that. So people can understand what this is about. Sure. This is a love letter to the nights I climbed into bed with a full face of makeup, too tired to take it off. To the days when one latte was not enough, when the two basic food groups were caffeine and sugar. This is a note to the girl I was when joy was a thing always 10 feet away, when getting out of bed was harder than not. This is an open-mouthed, sloppy kiss to the city that changed me, to, to the years that gathered in quick succession, to the men who were not right, and to the girlfriends who kept me afloat. This is a note to the nights I got home at five in the morning, lips stained, chin red and raw, happy. This is a missive both to and from the muddled middle, an ode to the mess and grace that is growing up, and a thank you to the girl I was at 20, who knew that, hard as things were, her life was changing, and if she could bear witness to it, stay awake enough to sit with it, then she could transform the most heartbreaking moments of her, of her life into the most meaningful. This is my bent and broken and wholly imperfect version of what happened and how it happened. And this is my declaration that, given the chance, I wouldn't change a thing. Oh, so much of that is what we've been talking about. Bear witnessing to your yeah. life changing and how, in the end, mm-hmm. that transforms things in a way that is... Yeah, so much more meaningful than otherwise. What was it like writing this book on the hardest decade of your life and probably yeah. the most important decade? Um, yeah, I, the writing was not easy. Um, and because I do write a lot about what didn't go well during that time period, mm-hmm. um, it's easy to, with the you know, the gift of hindsight to look back and go, why didn't I realize? Why didn't I know that, you know, that guy was no good or I shouldn't have taken that job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really startling in a lot of ways to, to put all down on paper in one go. Um, and I really had to practice forgiveness, uh, for myself with myself as I was, um, 
putting as as I was putting these words down on paper. So it's like asking you to to pick a favorite child, but do you have a favorite <laughs> story from the book that maybe was was it your favorite Am to write I... or it's your favorite to tell? You know, do I, I because and because much of the start of the book is um, pulled from, you know, this began as an ebook. It was a twelve thousand word ebook, and mm-hmm. this hardcover, this hard print, is about forty eight thousand words. Mm-hmm. So, the start of the book is really pulled from that early iteration, and for me, the back half of this book feels more immediate and more meaningful and um, in some ways like that's it it especially the very end of it because I really wrote um, I sold the book a year ago January or February um, and in working on that I got the edits over the summer last summer and the last several chapters of the book uh, were brand new that they didn't uh, they didn't exist in the original manuscript that was sold to Icon Books, um, and they were written in real time. So in in saying goodbye to the city, I was writing what that experience was, mm-hmm. and so that just feels incredibly dear to my heart. Um, it's, it's just those last few chapters of the book. Okay. Uh, yep, those are the ones that kept me up till three in the morning because I couldn't stop reading. So, <laughs> so much of your book is about saying goodbye and kind of a fond goodbye, mm. like you just said, to the city, to boyfriends that weren't right, to bad jobs. I see you doing a lot of pivoting in your life. I mean, you went to Juilliard for acting mm. and you, you talk about in your book how the eating disorder kind of took that dream from you because yeah. how could you act in a body that you couldn't relate with or connect with. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know what pivoting has meant for you. Mm-hmm. How has it been shifting shapes and how have you been able to move forward onto the next thing without focusing on regret? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. There are times that I, as much as I'm grateful for the experience that I had just as I had it, Mm -hmm. I think, man, I do wish I had stuck with acting. Mm -hmm. I do wish that I had continued on that path because I really loved it Mm -hmm. Um, and I was good at it and it it had a lot of meaning for me. Um, But I think, you know, the pivoting, the shifting has really just been about sort of a distilling of what what's my value system like what as clearly as I can say it do I believe in and how do I go in pursuit of that and so you know as I look back on my life you know all 32 years of it um, writing love of language and words has really been the overriding constant Mm -hmm. um through theater, through, you know, actual writing itself, through the work that that I'm hoping to do with public policy, um, is that language is the great nexus of, you know, we spoke earlier 
into this podcast about humanity, the great gift of humanity and revealing humanity and reveling in humanity. Mm. And how do we do that? You know, I think, I think language is the thing. So yes, it's been, I've done a lot of pivots in my life, but I really think it's just been like getting closer. It was sort of, I'm thinking of like a pinball moving down the, it's just getting, you know, the path keeps, um, narrowing and I'm mm. getting clearer about what I love and what I believe in. And, and really it's, it's, it's words. And if you hadn't sat in that discomfort or humanity, I don't know if you would have figured that out. Um, yeah, I mean, really probably I would have at like 55. <laughs> yeah. And how sad would that um, be? <laughs> it would have happened. It would have happened at some point. It's happened yeah. early. Well, so I, I asked this to each guest you've, about what lesson you've learned about yourself the past few years. You, you share in your book and you've shared with us lessons of your 20s. What about most recently? What is something that you've learned about yourself that you'd like to share with um, our listeners? Yeah. So, you know, I started school this September mm-hmm. um, and immediately I met a guy yeah. Um Yay. Um, And what was, you know, I, I had finished writing the book by the time I met him. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, someone messaged me recently after reading the book, and they were like, but wait, no guy, like, where's the happy ending? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm very happy. I love him very much. He is very much everything that I wrote about wanting and looking for. Um, but I'm also, you know, humbled um, by God's great sense of humor in that I only found him after I sort of figured everything else out. Mm. And I use that term loosely. I have nothing figured out. But I mean, <laughs> only after I was willing to take bigger risks that had nothing to do with the pursuit of a partner for my life. Mm-hmm. Um and so in this year where many, many very good things have happened to me, I've started graduate school and a year into it, I've written a book, the book has been published, I've met this guy. It's been interesting to see where wow. people will want to focus on, oh, but the guy, the guy, the guy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm like, he is exceptional, mm-hmm. but he is not the, the thing that has defined this year. He is not more important than these other accomplishments. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we as a culture and in our society, we know how to celebrate weddings and we know how to celebrate children and we, and that's exciting and that's good. And we should celebrate those things. They're remarkable and important, but there are other things worth celebrating Mm -hmm. that sometimes get lost in the cracks. Um, and so I myself, really want to make sure that I always champion the women around me who their successes aren't as clear or aren't as, um, you know, the, the friend who gets the PhD or the friend who buys a house on her own or the friend, those things are really exciting and we may not, you know, have a registry for them, but that doesn't make them any less important and any less meaningful And so for myself, I want to celebrate the things that I've done this year, um, as well as celebrating the things that my girlfriends and women around me are constantly doing. 
um, that that aren't as tidy or neat. And, you know, so much of your book, while, while there is a lot of, I'd say, you know, romance and like mist, um, what's mm. it, like sliding doors, um, things, that's not yeah. what your book was about to me. It wasn't about the romance. Mm. It was who you were becoming. And I love that that's what you're urging yeah. us to honor is to celebrate the path that people are on. Celebrate mm-hmm. not even those moments of achievement, but the hard, the cracks in the path, you know, that yeah. are taking us to yes. where we're headed. That's that's so beautiful. So Meg, I, I, I'll make sure yes. to um, link to your, your, sorry, I'll make sure to link to your website and to your book. It is such a beautiful read. It's romantic. As I said, it's sentimental, but it's raw and it's honest. It's refreshing. Um, thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for being on my show to share about you and what you've learned and your book as well. Thank you for having me. I hope you loved hearing from Meg. If you guys think that this interview was amazing, you need to read Meg's writing. It will change you, and I truly mean that from my heart. I will be going live on Instagram on Thursday at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to discuss this episode with you. So come prepared to ask questions or share some insight over what Meg taught you as you listen to this episode. And if you'd like, and actually you must, you need to check out Meg's book through the link in my show notes, as well as the links I have to her website and social media accounts. And my show notes can always be found on my website aboutprogress.com. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe, share this podcast, especially this episode with someone who you think could relate and leave me a review on iTunes. I am up in the 180s for ratings and reviews, and my goal is 500 this year, so we are almost halfway. Help me get there, friends. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to reserve your spot for my upcoming workshop in Utah. I'm so excited and nervous for it, and it's definitely going to be the next leap for me. I'll see you next Wednesday for another great interview, and until then, please take care of yourself.